This is Macro Horizons, episode 99, One More to Go, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of December 14th. And as we contemplate the balance of 2020, yet another positive pandemic externality has revealed itself in our ability to listen to holiday music at home and at work. Because truly, there is no difference. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said... Let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market got a fair amount of information in terms of investors' reaction function to incoming supply. We had the reopening of the 10-year note at $38 billion that tailed just four-tenths of a basis point, and we had the reopening of the 30-year bond at $24 billion, which stopped through 1.6 basis points. Now, this speaks to ample demand for Treasury securities at this point in the cycle, and more importantly, at these outright yield levels. The broader theme was ultimately one of bull flattening, and that was driven primarily by the notion that given the set of risks on the horizon, the Fed has the potential to deliver an extension of the weighted average maturities of bond purchases through its QE program. Now, that has clear implications for the shape of the yield curve. A bull flattener in advance of the announcement follows intuitively. We'll argue, however, that it might ultimately simply prove to be a buy-the-rumor-sell-the-fact affair, because if we can price in a sufficient bull flattener ahead of the announcement, what we'll see is the realization of the event, assuming that it does actually come on the 16th of December, will allow investors to book profits and move past what is widely expected to be the next big monetary policy move from the Fed. Again, conviction is low around the street in terms of whether or not it occurs on the 16th or if the Fed keeps that tool in reserve for 2021 in the event that the economic outlook dims further. The most compelling reason to actually follow through with the WAM extension is that several key liquidity programs that the Fed was running in conjunction with the Treasury Department are going to be allowed to expire at the end of December and not extended into the new year. Now, the debate between Mnuchin and Powell on this topic made headlines in early December, and that's when investors got the first glimpse at the potential reaction in the shape of the curve. Again, clearly a bull-flattening scenario. The week just passed was not without economic information of note, particularly the Consumer Price Index release. This was November's data, and both the headline and core CPI prints came in higher than expected, both printing up two-tenths of a percent on the month. What's fascinating, however, is that on that day, 
Not only did we have a stronger inflation read, which speaks to the reflationary camp, but there was also the long bond auction. And still, on net, the market managed to bull flatten rates lower led by the long end of the curve. Now, while the post-auction performance is consistent with our go-to strategy of buying the refundings and reopenings, it did, however, run in contrast with our call between now and the end of the year to see 10-year yields breach 1%. Clearly, OM extension is going to be an inhibition to that call. However, the departure point matters. So if the market goes into the FOMC with 10-year yields close to current levels, which are roughly 90 basis points, that leaves open of the very real possibility that bearishness into the end of the year does get us to that 1% 10-year yield target. So we've reached the point in the year when annual outlooks are being published, refined, and the market is framing its expectations for what 2021 may hold. Ian, what are we thinking? I think that we find ourselves in the uncomfortable position of being relatively consensus at this point. And by that, I mean the year-end forecast for 2021 is for 10-year yields to end at 1.25%. Now, that's not dramatic in any sense. However, what will be more fascinating is the path it takes for rates to get there. We're very focused on the range trade with a slight bearish bias. So that means that we could see a test of 1% or even up to 125 on some early optimism as 2021 unfolds, but that will ultimately be met by dip buying interest. And we also have the Fed to consider. In the upcoming week, we have the FOMC meeting and there will be some decision either to delay or follow through with the WAM extension. But regardless of what they do, the potential for more bond buying further out the curve will remain a omnipresent feature throughout the year. In the very front end of the curve, we're not really expecting much of anything, simply using the experience of 2010 to 2015 as a guide. It seems pretty clear that twos, threes, and fives are going to be in a very narrow and definable range for the foreseeable future. So this leaves the shape of the curve a directional trade at best, which isn't new for this market. But in the context of all the risks in the year ahead, I think it's worth highlighting that it will be an oscillation between bull flattening and bear steepening as a theme. And underlying this call are a couple assumptions. First being that the vaccine rollout goes more or less according to plan. Everybody is expecting some setbacks along the way, but the general consensus at this point seems to be that inoculation will be widespread enough by, call it the middle of 2021, that the new economic normal will begin on a similar timeline. Along with this is the expectation that inflation or the anticipation thereof will also begin to pick up in a way that was difficult to see throughout the pandemic. So thinking about these two sort of underlying drivers, where might we be wrong? So clearly a rate forecast that involves a relatively narrow range that still manages to be consensus has implicit risks in it. And Ben, as you point out, there's some key assumptions at play behind our expectations for a gradual upward sloping channel in 10-year yields to be the primary theme. One of those key assumptions is that the reflationary narrative plays out, but it doesn't play out in such a way that the Fed is content to allow the market to reprice dramatically. So 
One scenario in which we're wrong is the Fed steps back and the reflationists really drive the curve steeper. In that case, we would risk seeing 10-year yields above 150. Now, the reason I'm less convinced that that's a viable outcome has to do with the performance of risk assets in that environment. Ben, imagine a situation in which 10-year yields, for whatever reason, repriced to 2% over the course of two or three weeks. How do you think stocks would react to that? Given that a lot of the outperformance of risk assets so far has been predicated on lower treasury yields, I think it's safe to say that if 10-year yields get back up to 2%, some wobbles in the equity market would follow intuitively. And wobbles in the equity market translates to spike in equity volatility, tighter financial conditions, and gets the Fed back re-engaged in the market. It's this feedback loop that we ultimately expect will contain rates and prevent the upside scenario from coming to fruition. And there is historical precedent around this. It feels like a long time ago now, but at the end of 2018, when we saw 10-year yields approaching 325, that drove exactly this feedback loop that you're talking about, Ian. The end of the year saw a sharp drop in stocks, which caused volatility to surge and ultimately led to Powell deciding to stop the balance sheet runoff and the monetary policy tightening implications that the rundown of the Fed's holding had a couple of years ago. It's also worth noting that it wasn't a singular event where we started to see this vulnerability of equity valuations to higher rates. The first notable reversal was caused by the attempt that you point out, Ben, to get to 325.10s, but then subsequent weakness in equities occurred at lower and lower rate levels. It was then 275, then 225, and eventually, because of the Fed's response, the market drifted into this sustainably lower rate environment. And we struggle to see that changing anytime soon. If you take a step back and we think about how monetary policy has evolved over the course of the last 30 years, this increase in transparency and predictability has had the intuitive impact of taking out a lot of volatility from forward rate expectations. And that in and of itself has served to compress the curve. You layer on top of that a global pandemic in which the Fed's response is to commit to keeping a zero interest rate policy in place for the foreseeable future, and it puts a natural cap on the upside for rates. And what about the flip side of this logic? Sure, vaccinations are beginning, but if we've learned anything from 2020, it's that there are certainly more setbacks to come on the path through the pandemic. So to the rate downside, what are some areas of focus? I think that the rate downside scenario is actually the highest probability of us getting it wrong. So if anything, we would skew our call a bit more bullishly. And here's the logic. There's a great deal of vaccine optimism currently priced into the market. The assumption is that it's going to be a relatively direct path toward reopening and some new novel norm eventually developing. But it almost goes without saying that there are going to be issues with the populace embracing the vaccine. And so that could create an obvious struggle. Not to mention, we still have a significant subset of the key part of the labor force, that 25 to 34-year-old cohort, that is currently out of the market. And they're not out of the market because they've retired early. They are out of the employment market because they're simply waiting out the pandemic. So there's going to be enough slack in the labor market that the translation of economic growth into wage pressure and ultimately 
true demand-side consumer price pressure is going to be very difficult to realize for the Fed next year. So that will function as a key offset to the reflationary argument. The other aspect is if we look outside of the U.S., we see a lot of headwinds to a global recovery. The situation in Europe and the negative rate environment that persists there, if we look at Japan, if we look at what's going on in the U.K., there's a compelling reason to expect that dip buying might ultimately emerge before we get to 1% tens or beyond. So that also suggests that if there is a bias within the forecast, it would be to lower rates. And this week, especially that dip buying mentality was on full display, despite the fact that we didn't see any meaningful auction concessions for either 10s or 30s. Both of those supply events went relatively well, all things considered. And the fact that bonds rallied in the aftermath really supports this notion that it's going to take something other than sort of the transitory influence of supply to get 10-year yields above 1%. And the willingness we've seen buy investors to step up and defend that level suggests that should we get through it, a sell-off may run a bit farther than would otherwise be expected. But for that, I think it's fair to say we're going to need to have the results of the Fed in hand. Yeah, I'd also add that truly the reopening auction week trade wasn't a supply one. Rather, it was pricing in the potential for the Fed to deliver a WAM extension. Now, it's very much an open debate whether or not that occurs on the 16th of December, although most people expect that the Fed's next effort to deliver monetary policy accommodation will come in the form of a WAM extension. Whether that is in 2020 or 2021, we'll know next week. If the market finds itself in the situation where the Fed has decided to forego a WAM extension, then it follows that we would see a pretty significant re-steepening impulse, and that could very easily put 1% 10-year yields back on the table. That said, I think there's still a pretty compelling argument that we could get to 1% tens even if the Fed shifts buying further out the curve. Once that is priced in as a reality, and we get a sense for how the new purchase schedule is going to play out, we're just going to go back to trading the same big macro theme for 2021, and that is the reflationary story. And as you point out, Ben, we don't actually need to see an increase in realized inflation, although it's worth noting there's a significant base effect that comes into play in March, April, and May of 2021. All we need to see is a pressing of that trade based on expectations as the economy continues to heal and recover and push forward. It's the risk that we see stumbles along the way that I think really has us talking more about 1% tins rather than 150 or anything more dramatic in this current environment. And the latest evidence of this dynamic was last week's jobs report. We saw the headline and private payrolls both miss consensus, and yet the read was not so dire as to meaningfully alter the market's expectation for the recovery. So once the event risk passed, the underlying trends that recently have been favoring higher yields once again regained relevance and helped push 10-year yields up to that 98 basis point level. So to me, it's not unreasonable to expect that once the Fed has come and gone without any truly earth-shattering revelations, we could see a similar dynamic play out. There's also the aspect of 
bad news becoming good for market expectations. Not for the Fed per se, i.e. bad news leads to further monetary policy accommodation in the form of a WAM extension, but bad news translating to a higher probability that Washington finally delivers on a fiscal deal of some sort. We've been talking about a roughly $900 billion new fiscal stimulus plan. That's 4.5% of the nominal GDP in the US. That would be a significant boost, and we see expectations for that being challenged in the equity market somewhat, although it really still remains an open question whether or not DC can deliver by the end of the year or even in January, frankly. And one point on this round of fiscal negotiations that makes it different than what we saw in the CARES Act is that we've reached the point when we can see the end of the pandemic. You and I have both made the analogy that these stimulus measures, both from the Fed and Congress, operate as a sort of bridge to get the economy through this period of time when in-person commerce is restricted, lockdowns are implemented, and layoffs have happened. Unlike in the middle of last year, when it was anybody's guess when business might be able to return to some version of normal, now that the vaccine process is rolling on, there is an end in sight that hopefully this new leg of the bridge, quote unquote, will be able to get us to. And let's face it, an end in sight that doesn't involve zombies is always a win. In the week ahead, the Treasury market does have a fair amount of fundamental information in terms of the economic data. We do see the Empire State print as well as import prices, the current account, and Philadelphia Fed, as well as retail sales for November. The biggest issue, however, will be Wednesday's FOMC meeting. We've already talked a great deal about the potential for WAM extension, and it is very much an open question, which does, in and of itself, make it a tradable event. So as the last big macro event of 2020, there will be a fair amount of focus on the Fed's decision as well as Powell's press conference as expectations continue to be refined for 2021 and the shape and the character of the recovery. Now, within the retail sales figures, expectations are for a two-tenths of a percent decline in the headline number, which in an environment where inflation is above expectations suggests that the contribution to real GDP of a negative print will be even more troubling as we ponder growth in the fourth quarter. The broader debate about where we are in terms of the K-shaped recovery, the V-shaped recovery, the W-shaped recovery will continue. Our base case scenario remains that while there will be winners and losers consistent with the K-shaped scenario, the fact of the matter is that the beginning of 2021, we're going to see the real economy struggle primarily as a result of the increase in COVID-19 cases and the associated lockdowns and restrictions on in-person commerce. The big driver of the recovery will ultimately have to come in the form of service spending. We saw goods consumption maintain a relatively healthy pace even after the second quarter contraction. And the next question becomes, how much of that will the end user ultimately reallocate from good spending to service consumption? That will continue to be the primary macro narrative as 2021 unfolds. We are leaning 
reasonably heavily on the seasonals as a market at this point. The initial spike in optimism associated with the progress toward a vaccine did bring 10-year yields as high as 98 basis points. This is very consistent with the tendency of the treasury market to price in optimism for the year ahead in the fourth quarter. The question then becomes, is that optimism warranted? And will the momentum survive into January and February? Our base case scenario continues to suggest that during the first part of Q1, there will be a residual upward pressure on rates until the realities of the data cycle catches up with that market expectations and we get a clearer picture of the pace of consumption and from there can estimate the magnitude of any recovery that we'll see before the vaccine is fully implemented and herd immunity is achieved. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with the FOMC the final major event of the year, we'll soon pack up our coal and head home. Oh, wait. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. 
BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.